The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. If you've ever wasted opportunity, then you know how much it disappoints you and the people around you because you don't get the results that you want. Well, our next guest has a backdoor strategy to resolving those issues and taking advantage of everything that's in front of him. Bill Staten, nice to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Share a little bit about, you know, something about how you identified a lot of the strategies that you use from watching other people waste opportunities. Oh, so true. First of all, Joel, thank you for having me here. This is really cool. Yeah, it amazes me how people, sometimes the opportunity is staring them right at the face and they don't take the opportunities and then they wonder why they haven't achieved the results that they want to achieve. I've been pretty lucky. Uh, you, you know a little bit about my, my background. I worked in television for a long time and I was pretty fortunate. I managed to be pretty successful. I won 29 Emmy Awards, led my team to over 100 Emmy Awards. Hold, hold on a second. 29 Emmys yourself and 100 for your team. Yeah. I mean, is there like a Guinea's number that, that you must <laughs> Uh I don't know where that is in the books, but we did we did pretty well. Basically. There can't be that many people have more than you. Put it there like that, There aren't too right? many, I don't think. I don't think. Oh. <laughs> I've got a couple of them back there. Now, but that all started, my very first TV job was in my hometown, little town of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country. Not exactly the best TV audience. <laughs> don't watch a lot of TV. But I was basically, I got hired as a secretary. And, um, you know, just answering mail. That's it. So my very first day there, 5 o'clock comes around. It's quitting time. Everybody else goes home. I go up to the engineering office and say, hey, do you guys have a manual for the editing machines? They said, yeah, here you go. So when everybody else went home, I stayed there all night teaching myself how to edit. And I did that for the, you know, for the entire week. And then the next week, I did the same thing with the cameras. Teach myself how to shoot video with the cameras, with the professional cameras. And then I waited for somebody to get sick. And eventually, somebody got sick. And I said to my boss, a guy named John, I said, John, you know, I, I think I can pull this off, you know, because otherwise we were going to lose the shoot. I said, I, I think I can do it. Why don't you send me out? I'll shoot it. I'll edit it. And if it, you know, if it sucks, then you're no worse off than you are now. And it didn't suck, and it was actually pretty good. So because of that, I now have 29 Emmy Awards because I took the initiative. Here's the thing that amazes me, though, Joel. So for 15 years, I produced this comedy TV show in Seattle, which is where the Emmys came from. And um, for 15 years, I hired interns for the show. 
on the first day of every internship, I would sit down with the intern and say, look, you've got the keys to the entire building. I mean, they don't actually have, you're not going to give the intern the keys. You know, we're we're yeah, on this comedy show. Yeah. Yeah. You've got access. We're on this comedy show, but if you want to set up an interview with the news director, I'll do that for you. If you want to talk to the main anchors, I'll set that up for you. If you want to talk to, you know, the camera people, you know, who, whatever you want to do under your internship, if you want to write some sketches for the show, it's a comedy show. Fine. In 15 years, not a single intern took advantage of that. How do you not take advantage? These are people who want to work in television, and here they are at a major station in a major market, Seattle. It's not New York or L.A., but it's, you know, it's the number 12 market. And I'm basically offering them the keys to the kingdom. And I do that for 15 years, and not one took advantage of it. How is that possible? You know, uh, they don't get where they want to get. It's, listen, it's just, a, a couple things. One, you're talking about going the extra mile, which is really, a, that's absolutely a success factor. I mean, absolutely, 100%. People who are successful go the extra mile. That's that's number one. But not going the extra mile, wasting that opportunity is just the fastest road to disappointment. So they sit around, they go, I just wonder why I'm not getting promoted. I wonder why nothing great's happening to me. Right. I wonder, well, you know, you got to point the finger at yourself first. Instead of saying, these people aren't nice to me. These people don't like me. These people, what have you done? You know, salespeople all the time. I don't know if you had salespeople that said, I want this high commission. You know what? Yeah. I'm not uh, prepared to give you a high salary or a high commission. I'll tell you what. Let me see what you can do. You bet on yourself first. You go first. And if it works out, you'll be so valuable. I will not be able to convince you to stick around. Right. Right. Exactly. It's like the old adage of the person, you know, sitting in their cold living room, looking at the fireplace saying, if you give me more heat, then I'll give you more wood. It's like, <laughs> no, that's not, it doesn't work that way. You know, there, there, there are people say, you know, if you paid me more, I'd work harder. No, that's, it doesn't work. It's, you, you've got it exactly backwards. Yeah, well, you know, there's something about people who are successful that kind of understand that they have to bet on themselves first. Yeah. Then they find themselves in a position where people want their services and they end up in the driver's seat and they can call the shots and ask for what they want. And, and all, we live in, a, I don't know, there's something, something that's happened in our culture where people just think that they're entitled to special treatment or whatever. But the Here's, truth is, the world doesn't work like that. No, uh, here's kind of a, a rule of thumb that I think holds. I can't think of any exceptions that you should always be more valuable than your compensation. You should always be, be providing more value than your compensation, because otherwise, if you're providing less value than your compensation, then you're expendable. You know, it's funny. I would say from an employer's point, of view, I, I love that, by the way. And I think you're right. That's a wonderful attitude. And every single employee should have that attitude. My attitude as an employer has always been pay people 10% more than the market would pay them, then they won't leave. Oh, and that's good too. Then you yeah. don't have turnover. People aren't jumping around. So there's somewhere in between there where yeah. I'm paying them 10% more and they should be delivering 10% more. Somewhere in between there, that's a happy relationship. And that's, that's a happy relationship. That's the inside track to a really successful uh, business relationship, whether you're an employee or a contractor or a partner at any right. level. You know, listen, deliver more than you're being paid for and the money will follow. Yeah. I mean, that always works. And yet and, so and many of us. Way, in your case, the Emmys follow. So you must have really put out. I mean, let's talk about that process. Yeah. I mean, because the, the way that the awards work, uh, you know, so you put out some fantastic product right. that was better than 
anybody, the money wasn't even relevant. You just put out the best product that you could possibly put out. Mm -hmm. And, and then your colleagues, your professional colleagues in the industry rewarded you for that because they recognized what you did, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. You know, you do the best, we were um, a weekly show. So every week you're trying to put out the best show possible. And look, obviously just like anything, some weeks are great. And some weeks are like, okay, that's not going to go on the highlight reel. We all have that. (laughs) That does happen. But still, you're looking at each week on how can I top the week before? How can I top the week before? Somebody once said, and I, I wish I knew who to attribute this to. And this is as a speaker, you're a speaker, I'm a speaker. Somebody once told me that they said, you should be improving at such a rate that yesterday's audience is cheated by today's performance. Oh, that's that. I love that. That's brilliant. Isn't that great? And that's, that's what we did with our show. We try to make sure that each each season was better than the season before. Each show was better than the show before. Again, we didn't always hit it, but as long as you're aiming for that yeah, and trying new things, which is why you don't hit it sometimes. So you try something new. Okay, that didn't work. That's fine. No, no harm, no foul. But as long as you've got that attitude that I want to keep improving, that's, that's something I learned from Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he was on our show a number of times. And he was always trying to get better. Even when he was the hottest comedian in the country, when his TV show was on the air, he would still videotape his performances and try and make them better, even though they were already killing. You know, killing in the night. Let's talk. Let's talk about the idea of getting better, because, you know, when you're at the beginning, you know, you can get 50 percent better. But when you're Jerry Seinfeld, even to get one percent better is difficult because he's already at the top of the game. So what does getting better mean? I think it's an internal thing, because at Jerry Seinfeld's level, especially back then when he was the king of the world back then, at Jerry Seinfeld's level, here's the thing. He didn't have to get better. He was doing just fine. He was making millions. He was selling out theaters and clubs. He he didn't have to get better as far as the outside world is concerned. But internally, it was his own challenge. It's a a mindset of getting better. And you're right. Here's something he told me once. He said, for me, a good day's work is getting an eight-word sentence down to five words. That's the level. That's the level that he works at of, okay, it's not, let's, let's write a great joke. Let's, let's get eight words down to five words. And having that kind of discipline, and actually that's, that, that's one of the key words. It is having that discipline. What can I do to get better? How can I make, and most of us never do that. We get to a certain point, it's like, okay, this is working. And we don't go back and say, okay, can it work better? Can it work better? I don't understand. You know, I've, I've always heard that comedians are working on this laughs per minute concept. Yeah. And, and they study their material and they literally count the laughs they get per minute. And then they'll try to take out the stuff that didn't get a lot of laughs and they'll compress yeah. it so that they get more laughs per minute. And then the audience enjoys it more. And we're just rolling all the time. And we always wonder, God, I wonder how that guy does that. You know, but I guess it just takes a lot of practice huh? and a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of discipline. And yes, it's not just laughs per minute. It's also how long are those laughs? There was a comedy coach who I worked with at one point who said, now, I, I only did stand-up once or twice. I was never a stand-up comedian. But he said, here's what you do. You record everything you do, and any laugh, I may have the numbers wrong, but he said, but any laugh that doesn't last at least three seconds, get rid of that joke or, or improve it. And you should be getting, I think it was something like, you know, 12 laughs per minute. If you're not getting 12 laughs per minute, write more jokes. But that's exactly what it is. And what you do is, as a comedian, you work up to that. 
And what you do is you develop a really good five-minute set. And then you can be an opener at the clubs. And then you work and work and work and work, and finally you get 20 minutes. And that might take a year or so to get a really good, tight 20 minutes. And at that point, you're a good middle act. A headliner has 40 minutes of great material, but it takes years to get that. And the key is to make it look easy. That's why everybody thinks that they can do, basically anybody who has really mastered anything makes it look easy. You look at, um, okay, I'm going to date myself here, but you know, you look at Michael Jordan on the basketball court or Kobe or LeBron or somebody like that. They make it look easy, but you and I you know, probably couldn't pull that off. I mean, I couldn't. You, clearly an, an athlete, but you know. <laughs> but, you know, which is why we sometimes undervalue what we do too, because if we're really good at something, it's easy for us because we worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. So we tend to undervalue our, ourselves. It's like, well, this is really easy. It's only easy because well, we're let's, let's talk about you, uh, the speaking business. Uh, we're both in uh, in the pretty much the top tier of of speakers across the yeah. country and around the globe. What do you do to get better? How do you practice? How do you review yourself? Uh, you know, what do you do? Well, here's the key, Joel. There's something that we used to do before every episode of Almost Live, which, again, was, was the name of my show. Uh, we taped the show at 9 p.m. and then played it back at 11.30. But every Saturday at 6 p.m., we would do this thing that most speakers never even heard of. It's, a, it's kind of an inside word called rehearsal. We would rehearse the show. <laughs> That's something that most speakers don't do. Now, they say they rehearse. But for most speakers, rehearsal just means I ran the lines in the car or on the plane on the way to the gig. There, I rehearsed. That's not rehearsal. That's just memorization. That's okay. I ran the lines. Rehearsal is saying, like, if you have a day off where you don't, where it's not a travel day or a, a speech day, you might say, you know what? This is a good story. And it's, it's 12 minutes long. I need a five minute version for those times when, you know, they say you need to cut some time out of your speech. Or, you know what? I normally speak with a lavalier mic, which is a clip on mic, but Today, I'm going to rehearse doing my entire speech with a handheld mic, because one of these days, it's going to happen, and if I'm working with props and stuff, I want to be able to do that. Or, you know what? In this part of my speech, I normally get loud. I want to practice doing it quietly now. Now, it might not work. I might decide that that's not the way to do it, but at least I've tried it. One of our, our friends, and he's one of the greatest keynoters out there, a guy named Mark Sharonbrock, he did a, a speech once I saw, and then afterwards... Somebody commented about, you know, my God, Mark, your, I mean, even your facial expressions are so good. And Mark looked at them and said, well, yeah, it's because I've done the mirror work. Like the mirror work. But how many of us have done that, like spent an hour or a day or a half an hour in front of a mirror just saying, okay, what if I do this with my eyebrow? You know, what can my face, the face, this is one of our tools, our, our face, our voice, these are our tools. Let's see what it does. You think Meryl Streep hasn't done hours and hours and hours of mirror work, knowing oh. that, oh, if I smile this way, it does that. If I do this, Mark, Sharon Brock has done that. That's rehearsal. So when he raises an eyebrow or does a, some look on stage and it gets a huge reaction, that's not by accident. That's because he rehearsed it. That's what the best of the best of the best do. Yeah, well, listen, that's true, but it takes effort, you know, and a lot of people are just not, I'm making a little bit of a joke here. Yeah, a lot of yeah, people exactly. don't want to put out the effort and they, and there's a sense of entitlement kind of back to those interns, you know, like I deserve this or something. Right. Which is why they will hit a certain level of success and then plateau. And what, and look, that level of success might be very comfortable for them. It's like, okay, no, I'm doing okay. But still, it's a, it's a plateau. 
you know, it's you're not getting there. There are some lessons you learn early in your career. When I was a young accountant at Price Waterhouse, computers were brand new in 1985. And somebody said, listen, Joel, there's this program called Lotus. Uh, we want you to learn it. Uh, you know, go in this closet and don't come out till you know how to use it. <laughs> I literally, I was practicing, practicing all day long. Joel, and have you ever considered that maybe they just wanted to get rid of you for a little bit of time? <laughs> That's possible. I wouldn't put that behind anybody. I wouldn't put it past them. But then when I'd go home, I took my little check register for my checkbook and I put that in on Lotus. And then I put my bills on Lotus and I put this on Lotus and I tried to put recipes on Lotus. Everything in my life was focused on it. And I got so good at it that I became the Lotus guy on the floor. And that kind of like with you, you know, that I, I got my shot, you know, eventually you get your shot. Listen, the inside track, the best, the fastest, the smartest way to get things done. You got to be prepared. And yeah. Sounds, Bill, like you were prepared. You don't get 29 Emmys and 100 for your team without being prepared. You don't. And what I'm taking from this is that you do a lot of preparation. Yeah, I do a lot of preparation. You know, I've been speaking for a long time. I did a TEDx talk two years ago. Uh, It was 18 minutes in front of 2,500 people. It was very cool. I don't think I've ever rehearsed a speech more than I rehearsed that one. I would run it six times a day for two months. I mean, two months I did it on March 4th, 2017. For the two months leading up to that, I ran that that speech six times a day, every single day. I was sick of it. I was so tired of that stupid speech. When I got up there on stage, I thought I should have done more. Now the speech worked out well, it was, it was, it was good. But I didn't regret a single one of those preparations. Now, I've, I've gone the other direction. I've gotten up in front of an audience and thought, I don't own this yet. I don't own this speech. I mean, I'll get through it because, you know, at, at a certain level, you can get through. But there's that sense of feeling like I really own this. Well, so let me, let me ask them. So I, I know one of your topics mm-hmm. is producing under pressure. Yeah. And the only way you can really produce under pressure is to have such command of the, of the environment, command of, of what to do uh, in an emergency situation. You know, medical doctors, they know exactly what to do. They do right. it precisely. And that's a lot what the TV, the live TV environment is. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a pressure cooker environment. Talk it is. about and that. Yeah, well, because what I was doing for 15 years, my job was literally to produce under pressure. I was, I was the executive producer of the show. My job was to produce the show under pressure. There's the pressure of the clock. The show is exactly 27 minutes and 55 seconds long. You can't be a second short. You can't be a second long every single week. It airs at exactly 1135 on Saturday night. You know, you can't say, Oh, I'm not quite ready. Give me another 10 minutes. Nope. That's it. You've got a a live studio audience there. You've got your cast and your crew looking at you. if Something goes wrong because you have to fix the problem. You've got, you know, a million or more people who are going to be watching you later on that night, judging whether you're any good or not. You've got the pressure of the ratings, the pressure of your. So there's a lot of pressure there. Look, I'm not leading military campaigns, but still, there's a lot of pressure there. And I remember the very first time I produced that show, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, we talk about imposter syndrome. I really was an imposter. I'd never produced a show like that before. And things went wrong and the pressure got to me. I didn't know what I was doing. And it took a while. Our very last show that we ever did, 15 years later, a friend of mine was in the audience, and she'd never seen me in that environment before. And she said, you owned that studio. She said, I've never seen you like that. And the difference was, over those 15 years, I had the experience, I'd seen everything, I knew what I was doing, 
And I could not wait for Saturday night. I mean, that was like, I'm like, bring it. If there's, if, there, if there's a crisis, I welcome that. Wayne Gretzky, the, the hockey great, was asked once, you know, like, what do you do when it's, you know, when it's the final game, you know, it's the Stanley Cup finals and the clock is counting down everything. There's thousands of people in the stadium cheering and booing, whatever, because they're trying to distract you and all kinds of, you know, everything's, everything's on the line and the puck gets passed to you and everything comes down to this second, this moment, this one shot, everything comes down to that. How do you deal with that pressure? And I love what he said. He said, I live for that moment. I live all season for that moment. And it's because he, he knows he's good. You know, he's done the homework. He's done the preparation. But for him, it's like, that's my chance to shine. That's not, you know, that's, that's what I live for. And, and you know, that is, that is backwards of 98% of everybody else. Everybody else, they run away hoping that that never happens to them. Right. And the great of the great of the great live for the moment. They've prepared their entire career for that particular. I love that. I just, I just think you're so on target. That's got thinking about this is uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's it's so it's 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 not just producing under pressure. It's actually thriving under pressure. It's welcoming the pressure because that's where you get to show that you are the guy. You're and by the, the way, and by the way, that makes you even better because if you, when you thrive and love that environment, you you do even better. If you don't like it, you're going to run away from it. So. Right. Everything kind of, you're either moving totally forward or you're totally moving backward. And yeah. Looking forward to it, practicing, preparing, and, 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 and thriving in that moment absolutely makes you better. And that guy, what, that, what an awesome concept. I love it. And it's those pressure moments that really identify and magnify your abilities. So here's the myth about producing under pressure. We have this mythology that there are certain people who rise to the occasion who do better under pressure. They, I mean, they do their best. And the research doesn't back that up. The research doesn't back it up. I mean, if you see Roger Federer make this incredible shot, you know, in the Wimbledon finals, it's like, well, he's made that shot a thousand times before in practice. He's not doing anything that he couldn't do uh, before. So he's not rising to the occasion. Here's the key. The people who really produce well under pressure, it's not that they're rising to the occasion, it's that they're not falling because most of us choke. It's that they're just not choking under the pressure. Like, so if you're, let's say you're a professional basketball player, I'm using a lot of sports metaphors, but you're a professional basketball player and the whole game comes down to you making this free throw and you make the free throw. That's not superhuman. You know how to make free throws. I mean, how many free throws have you practiced? Hundreds of, hundreds of thousands, probably, you know, and you're... Hundreds of thousands, exactly. So it's like, you're not doing anything super... You're doing what you could normally do but you're you're not choking under the pressure. I mean, you're doing. doing you know, your- there there are certain positions in, and I think sports is a great metaphor for business and everything else. Yeah. But a field goal kicker has to be among the most pressure cooker situations. Yeah. You know, golf, a lot of other things that happen. Even free throws are tough. And what's different about those? Most sports, something is happening to you, and you're reacting. But free throws, right, right, golf, right. Uh, kicking. Those are you, you're just standing there and you go into action and you hit a stationary ball. Yeah, yes. <laughs> That's a lot harder than re- responding to something reflexively. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. But that's why it helps to, you know, have you think done that it. Those people that there are some people that were just born for more pressure than other people, or do you think that it's a learned skill? I tend to think it's a learned skill. I actually think most things are learned skills. There's something, a book called like The Myth of Talent or something like that. I can't remember the title, but it says basically it's talent 
is really a result of your environment and doing something a million times. Uh, they even talk about Mozart now. Anyhow, I tend to think that we use either you're born with it or you're not as an excuse sometimes. Yes, some people do have a, more of a natural ability to do certain things, but you can overcome that with ambition and with hard work. Now, there are certain natural things. Look, I'm 5'8". I was never going to play in the NBA. I'm not like Mark Eaton, who was a, a previous guest on your show, who you and I both know, seven feet tall, whatever, seven foot four. So clearly there are some natural things there that you're, you're born with. But the question is, no matter what you're born with or aren't born with, what are you going to do with it? That's really what it comes down to. You know, you and I both know people who may not have the best natural ability, but they're just killing it in their profession because they just work harder. So I don't know. I don't know if there's a specific answer to that. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. One other thing, I, I know you talk something about connecting the dots. What What is the connect the dots thing uh, for you and your world? What is what is that about? It, connecting the dots to me is huge. And I don't understand why more leaders don't embrace this concept. Here's what I'm talking about. I speak a lot about, about creativity and leadership because my years uh, producing Almost Live, I led an incredibly creative team. And our job, week after week after week, was to be creative on demand, whether we felt like it or not. So where does that creativity come from? And most people think that creativity is the spark that happens to like the gifted few, you know, the creatives, the artists, the poets, the musicians. And all of a sudden a spark comes to go like, ooh, there, there's the creative idea. That's almost never how it happens. Creative ideas, the million dollar ideas, you know, the iPhone, the printing press, whatever, the million dollar ideas are almost always the result of seeing two or more things that already exist and connecting them in a way that nobody ever connected them before. So it makes sense. So those two or more things are dots. It's like you have, it's like you have all these dots. Every person you meet is a dot. Every book you read is a dot. Every place you travel to, it's a dot. It's experience. It's things you have in your brain. It's these resources. It's, it's these dots. Whenever you find yourself saying, oh, you know what? This reminds me of that. You're connecting two dots. I tell the story. There was a uh, Trappist monk. He died a few years ago. And he taught a course in a small liberal arts college in Oregon. And the course he taught was a course in calligraphy. He's a Trappist monk. He's good at calligraphy. And his course was being audited by a guy named Steve Jobs, who had another hobby with computers. Cool. So he and his partner, Steve Wozniak, when they decided to build their own computer, Steve Jobs said, hey, could we build a computer that can do calligraphy? And that led to Apple. Wow. Here's here's the thing. Did calligraphy exist before Apple? Absolutely. It's existed for thousands of years. Did computers exist before Apple? Absolutely. But nobody had, so those dots were out there. It was Steve Jobs who put them together. He wasn't the best guy at computers necessarily. He wasn't the best calligraphist, but he was the person who, he had these two dots and put them together. Now, had he not audited that that calligraphy class, had he not collected that particular dot, he wouldn't have had access to that. So as leaders, doesn't it make sense to collect as many dots as possible? And yet so many leaders go through life only reading the same kinds of books, only talking to the same kinds of people, usually people in their own industry. So they're never getting that outside perspective. And so they're basically going through their entire life with blinders on and wondering where's that million dollar idea. The million dollar idea lives outside the blinders. That's where it comes from looking at something completely different from your industry and going like, ooh, how can I apply this? How can I connect that dot 
to this. Let's say you go see a great concert. You, know, you go see, again, I'm going to date myself. You see Springsteen because he just, he's amazing in concert. Think, okay, I run a paper company. I just saw Springsteen. What's he doing that I can bring into my company? Now, you may or may not come up with anything, but it's just, it's just having that kind of thinking is going to open you up to new experiences. You know, it starts with a question. What is he doing that I could bring to my company? Asking the question turns our mind into a situation and, and that allows us to start the creative process. Right. And, right. and if it's you exactly. can't come up with it yourself, you put, your, you put the question to your team. And if you can't put the question to your team, you put the question to your mastermind. And I sure hope that all you executive guys and female women and different people are in these uh, masterminds because they are just spectacular Value. to be part of other, uh, tap into other people and let them help you to solve your problems because right. it, really, it really goes a long way. It, it does really go a long, goes way. A long way. So, yeah. Bill, this is really fascinating. This is some really interesting uh, material. I, I like your perspective. What's interesting is you are such an accomplished person originally in the TV world and, and now as a speaker. I mean, you're on the road constantly. I mean, yeah. you're busy all the time. But you just you bring a really fascinating perspective that I think that is just awesome for listeners, and, and I've just enjoyed tremendously. So thank you very much. Oh, this has been a blast. So as, as you know, we've been trying to connect on this for a long time. I'm so glad it finally happened. I've really been looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Any anybody who has that depth of success that you have, there is a reason why you're successful. There's a, re- there's a reason why your team, by the way, was also successful. We don't have time to kind of get into the team dynamic, but you know, really there's an inside track and clearly you understand the inside track and that's the way that our listeners can profit from the inside. So thank you for sharing and we'll put your contact information if uh, anybody wants to talk to you about maybe doing a speaking engagement, some other things. We'll put that in the show notes, but thank you very much for being part of the show and really appreciate you being part of it. Thank you for being my friend too. Thanks so much, Joel. It was a blast. Take care. All right. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.